Well, Peter gives us a great example tonight in our lesson. We're looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. And uh, actually, before we jump into that text, what I want to do is remind about what what last week was. Last week, we looked at the end of Acts chapter 2. And the summary was this. Acts chapter 2 is Dr. Luke's snapshot of what was going on in the early Christian church. It's the best summary that we have in the Bible of what the early church looked like. And we're told in that section that the believers devoted themselves to four things. Remember what those were? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, God's word, to fellowship, to being together as Christian friends. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, which we said is probably a specific reference to Holy Communion and worship. And they devoted themselves to prayer. And when they devoted, which means they gave their whole lives to those four concepts, some interesting things happened. Number one, we're told they did it with very sincere, glad, and joyful hearts. It created kind of an uplifting sense of joy and gratitude in their lives. Because they had this tremendous gratitude in their hearts and lives, it led them also to recognize the needs of others around them. We're told they sold their possessions, they gave to people as they had needs. Well, another domino then fell. The surrounding community saw these Christians doing all sorts of compassionate acts towards one another and towards the community, and they said, isn't that kind of the way the world is supposed to work? In other words, the early church said they enjoyed the favor of all the people. And the final domino that fell in that, final thing that we hear in Acts 2, Spirit tells us, and the Lord was numbering, adding to their number daily those who were being saved. So last week we said, when the church was doing what Jesus commanded it to do, uh, showing the grace that Jesus himself had showed to them, it led, it brought about a bunch of good results. This week what we're saying is Christianity and the, the lifestyle that comes from believing the gospel is certainly no less than doing, but it's more than doing. It's also speaking. And here's where our lesson comes today. Uh, Craig read this a moment ago, but let me just summarize it quick. Peter and John are on their way to the temple for their daily prayers. There's a famous beggar there. He's there every day. Everybody at the temple knows him. And he's crying out for help. He's randomly calling out for help. That's kind of the nature of a lot of beggars. They're, They're indiscriminate in terms of who they're seeking help from. They're kind of flailing desperately about in life. Will somebody please help me crying out? Peter says, look at me. Stop flailing about in life. Look at me. I don't have gold and I don't have silver, but what I do have, I want you to have. He says, that's the power that's attached to the name of Jesus Christ. He says, according to that name, get up and walk. And Peter and John grab him by the hands, they bring him to his feet, and miraculously he's healed. This is a guy who's been crippled for over 40 years. Everybody around sees what's happened. They're amazed by it, understandably, and they gather around Peter and John thinking that they have some kind of magical or miraculous powers. And Peter and John say, nope, this doesn't come through our doing. This comes through the power of the name of Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord. This upsets the other leaders at the temple. And they start getting involved, and our text says they put them on trial. But the the question again is, does the Christian church today still still possess the same kind of power that it had once upon a time. The power to get people up off their feet, uh, emotionally, physically, psychologically, relationally, and above all spiritually, 
Does it have the willingness to steer people in the right direction through the only name by which salvation can be found, Jesus Christ? Are we willing to speak boldly? Uh, Here's the lesson while Peter and James are on trial tonight. The priests and the captain of the guard, uh, the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John when they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed. The Jewish leaders were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in, in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The Jewish leaders seized Peter and John because it was evening and they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now you notice it specifically says men, which means the number of believers was now up over 10,000 or so. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? They won't even specifically name what the miracle is. They don't even want to give it any credit or any authority. How are you guys doing this stuff? Then Peter, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, in other words, if you're calling us out for doing good stuff for the community, that's ridiculous. But then know this, and you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you now healed. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, who has become the cornerstone. Can you advance one slide there, please? which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they had no education, they were fishermen, they had no clout, they had no power, they had no special understanding. These ordinary men, the Jewish leaders were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see that the man who had been healed was standing there right in front of them, there was nothing that they could say. This is God's word. Um, Here's what we're going to break the the sections into tonight. I got three sections, and for time reasons, I'm actually going to break it only into two sections. I used to do this a lot at my last congregation. I would somehow write sermons that were very clearly enough material for 45 to 60 minutes, and I knew people would riot if we got that long. So I said, how do I trim it to 30 minutes? If you want a full copy of the manuscript of my sermon, uh, you are welcome to have that. Email me and I'll send it to you. But for today's purposes, I am erasing point two, which has a bunch of great insights, by the way. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, I'm just going to go with point one and point three. The reason for not believing, why do people in general not believe? Uh, the courage of witnesses, again, it's, it's basically just kind of breaking down some things that you and I can learn as witnesses like Peter and John. Number three, we're going to look at oh, I, why Jesus makes all the difference in the world to our witnessing, okay? So first of all, the reason why some people don't believe. The thing that I want you to notice, when you look through verses one through six, there's a group of people there that very clearly are upset with Jesus. At first glance, you might think they're all basically the same group of people. 
They're not. Okay, we're actually told that there are the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Romans. These people actually hate each other. They have nothing in common except they commonly hate Jesus and his followers. Uh, the Sadducees are like the chief priests and uh, the family of priests there and the Jewish Sanhedrin. They are, politically speaking, they're conservative because they're the people who are in charge and they want to stay in charge. So they have a working relationship with the Romans. Theologically and biblically, they're liberal. They don't believe in a personal Messiah. The Sadducees don't believe in a literal resurrection from the dead. They don't believe in the spiritual forces of this world like angels and demons. They're theologically liberal, the Sadducees. Their counterparts, their opposites, are the Pharisees. Whenever you read in our text like the elders and the teachers of the law, by and large, the Pharisees are lay leaders who are sort of pillars of the Jewish community and have a significant amount of influence. Uh, they are people who are, again, the religious fundamentalists. They believe in a Messiah. They believe in a uh, resurrection from the grave. They believe in the spiritual forces in this world. To sum it up, the, the Sadducees don't really think that you need a salvation per se. The Pharisees believe that you need salvation, but that you're capable of attaining it on your own through your own obedience to the Mosaic Code. See, they both disagree with the grace of Jesus, but for different reasons. And then you've got the captain of the guard. These are the Roman politicians and the Roman uh, military and the Roman soldiers and that group. These guys all hate each other, but they share in common the fact that they hate Jesus. Why do they hate Jesus? Why do they hate Jesus' followers? Is it because of a lack of evidence? They don't believe in Jesus because there's not enough evidence. Virtually every non-believer that I've ever spoken to believes that they don't believe because they don't see sufficient evidence for it. Is that why people don't believe? It can't be. Just look at our lesson. The guy who was crippled for 40 years is healed and he's walking and he's right in front of them and they say, well, we can't say anything to this. He's right there. And yet they don't believe. If the evidence can be walking literally right in front of you and yet you still don't believe, that means that your disbelief isn't due to lack of evidence. It's a personal reason. People disbelieve in Jesus Christ because there's implications attached to that. If you believe in the message of Jesus, it comes after your sense of self, it comes after your identity, it comes after your authority and control over your own life, it comes after your worldview and your way of you perceiving reality. It's, a, it, it's in that sense a threat to you. It's not threatening, but it threatens your, your perceived control over your life. Uh, example, my last congregation uh, there was a guy who was, uh, he was not a member, he was a professed agnostic. His wife was a faithful Christian. Um, he was, by many accounts, just a great guy. He was a wonderful husband. He was a great involved father. He was really successful professionally. He was a medical doctor and actually a uh, researcher, a cancer researcher, the head of his department um, at a world-class facility. And uh, one of the things that he told me once in like a two-hour conversation in the evening was, uh, first of all, he, he, he likes a lot of things about religion. He cannot accept this fact and will not accept the fact that the sole path to salvation could be through this Jesus of Nazareth uh, individual. And in fact, he, what he specifically told me was his belief of religion was that it served a purpose of being a kind of community for people who had similar interests and similar mentality uh, a community in a big, scary world. In other words, it so served this social purpose that way, but it shouldn't try to uh, do anything beyond that. After two hours of conversation, we agreed to disagree, went on our ways. 
Just so happens several weeks later, and I'm not commenting on this at all because it's not up for us to figure out what exactly God is doing. I do know, however, just as a fact that I'm reporting, several weeks later, maybe a month later, his wife contracted cancer. Um, Not only did he love his Christian wife dearly, uh, he was also a cancer researcher. This rocked his world for a number of different reasons. Uh, Something that he was supposed to be at the cutting edge of, he can't control. A number of months passed by, fortunately she recovered and was doing much better and is is still doing well. And uh, his whole worldview had shaken a little bit and he was more receptive to some things at this point. And he actually entered into one of my Bible Foundations classes. And there's about a dozen other students in there, but I can tell during the first lesson he was... He was flipping through the pages uh, all the way, not on the lesson that we were actually on, flipping actually deep into the appendices of the study. And I kind of thought, uh-oh, he's very clearly looking for something. Sure enough, after the study, he comes up to me and he says, uh, do I have to believe in creation in order to be a Christian? I said, well, we talked about it. Uh, creation uh, not only is, is the first thing sequentially taught in Scripture, but it's a foundation for all of Scripture. The idea that God created and ordered and governs all of the universe and creation. Furthermore, uh, you know, so if you take that part out, you're questioning the authenticity and, and validity of Scripture. But you get to the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul's, all his teaching is based on the foundation of Genesis. And so all of Pauline theology starts to unravel if you get rid of the creation account. And so we talked about how it weaves in with the gospel. And at that point, he, uh, he's a very mild-mannered guy, but he was really clearly upset. And he looked me in the eye and he leaned in and he said, there is not a single thing that you could say to me to get me to not believe in evolution. And I said, there's not a single piece of evidence that I could bring before you a scientist to convince you to not believe in macroevolution? That is the single least scientific thing I've ever heard. I can prove evidence to the contrary and that's not good? That's not good enough? We again agreed to disagree, this time a little bit more bent out of shape than we were previously. What I came to understand, it was a real eye-opening thing for me, what I came to understand is that his problem all along was not sufficient evidence for or against creation or evolution or anything like that. What, What it did, what the Bible was doing is it was coming after the thing that he held closest to his heart. It was coming after the thing that he used to make sense of a big scary world that he lived in. It was coming after his identity It was coming after his sense of self. And furthermore, if God is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, uh, then he gets final say and I don't. Human progress doesn't and I have to ultimately just surrender to his will and surrender to his control. Happily, six months later, that guy ended up getting baptized. A year after that, he ended up becoming actually a member of our church. Several years after that, I got a letter from his daughter whom I had also taken through some instruction classes uh, and she had one of the, for an 18-year-old, one of the most articulate professions of faith and, and descriptions of her spiritual journey and what happened all on all the way and she thanked me for teaching and having some of those hard, difficult conversations because she was not a believer at the time either. Uh, here's what this means for you and me. Uh, it, 
it wasn't because I had a great argument. It wasn't because I had all the evidence. A lot of believers don't think they can witness because they're afraid of all the questions that might be asked and they think, I don't have the 2,000 bullet points of evidence lined up perfectly. If it's not about evidence, if unbelief is not about a lack of evidence but it's a personal issue, then there's only two pieces of evidence that you really need. You need to know that Jesus Christ is God's son who came into the world to die for your sins and you need to believe that he rose from the grave. You need to know, memorize the lyrics to I know that my redeemer lives. You have enough evidence. If it's a personal issue, not an evidence issue, then what you do is you simply tell the other person this, this God's story of personal grace in your life. How he has specifically ministered to you through Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's all you need. You just got to have the guts to open your mouth and speak and God the Spirit will work exactly through that. Now, here we get to the point where I'm going to skip over number two. But there are a couple things I need to close out this point with. First of all, if you are not sticking your neck out there and witnessing to non-believers in your life about the grace of Jesus Christ, that can only mean two things and they're both really scary. If you're not aggressively witnessing to the grace of Jesus in your life, it can mean one of two things. Either, number one, you don't believe that Jesus is the only name under heaven by which somebody can be saved. See, you might think that, well, maybe God is basically a loving God and human beings are basically good people and if we try hard, that's enough, that's sufficient and somebody can be saved. Remember, Peter was not gutsy to witness prior to Jesus forgiving him of his denial and prior to the resurrection. He must have thought to some extent uh, that salvation could come some other way. He wasn't willing to stick his neck out for Jesus until after the resurrection, until after his personal forgiveness. Uh, if, if you think there's some way other than through the name of Jesus Christ, you're never going to stick your neck out there to witness to somebody else. So if you're not witnessing to somebody else, either it means that you think there's possi- it's possible that salvation could come from some other place and the other, the other implication is even scarier. The only other implication is you're not all that concerned about the salvation of the person who is still lost. And you're too preoccupied. Neither one of those is awesome. And it's massively convicting to me when I think about it. There's nothing more important that I have going on in my life than sharing the grace of Jesus with somebody who's lost. One other point I want to make about that, it's amazing to me uh, in the like, Wells Church body how much youth education, Christian education that we have. Some of you have had something like 18 years of Christian education. Do you know how many years of of Christian education the disciples had before they got to witnessing? Before they got to sticking their necks out there? Three. They had Christian education maybe through grade two. Okay? And yet they're sticking their necks out there. What if you and I have received all this this Christian education and we're not putting our necks out there? Uh, Let me put this a different way. If you went to Best Buy and you bought like this several thousand dollar speaker system for your home and you brought it home and you put it up and uh, you just left it there, somebody would have to say, man, what an enormous waste, right? This is what you've been wired for your whole life. What were you going to Christian school for? What were you going to Sunday school for? Uh, 
You got to stay plugged in, but you got to have the guts to actually turn those speakers on. You are God's speaker system by which he is intending to speak the message out into the world. You don't have to come up with your own message. He makes the music and blasts it through. He needs you to turn that switch on to have those conversations to work through you because you will be his witnesses in the world. You know how you find the courage to do that? It's not entirely in point two, which we're going to skip over. It's in point three. Can you bring us to point three? I'm not sure why my clicker's not working. And bring up the first passage under point three. Salvation is found in no one else. See, again, if you think salvation can be found elsewhere, you won't be gutsy to witness. But I'll tell you what, uh, the thing that makes the difference is understanding how different the message of Jesus is. Every other message in life, every other belief system in life, whether religious or irreligious, all is a self-salvation project. And it's a disaster. So look at the other religions of the world. Take, for instance, Buddhism. What does Buddhism say? Buddhism says that the biggest problem in life is your desires. You need to detach from your desires. You need to detach from your selfish pursuits. You're grasping at life and you need to let all of that go. You need to overcome, though. It's your self-salvation project. Last words of Buddha before he died, according to his followers, was, strive without ceasing. That's exactly right. It couldn't possibly be more perfect. Strive without ceasing. Ceaseless striving. That's where you end up with man-made religion. Trying and trying and trying and never actually getting there and feeling no rest along the way. Uh, well, certainly other religions must have something different. No, they don't. Hinduism, what is it? System of reincarnation and karma and nirvana. You get the salvation through passing into the next life if you are good enough. If you are deemed that you've done more good than bad or whatever else, that it's performance-based. Strive without ceasing. What about Islam? At least there, God is a God of mercy, right? On the top of each of the 114 surahs, it says that Allah is a God of mercy. Yes, until you actually read the surahs, and you find out who does this Allah have mercy to? He has mercy upon everyone who prays enough, does enough good, does enough for the poor, strive without ceasing. See, the other religions of the world get the, the dead, uh, deadness aspect of our lives down. They get guilt, they get sin, they get our incompetence and, and, and whatever else, naturally speaking. Uh, but they say, you know what, if you're going to be saved, you have to strive at it. It's your self-salvation project. You know what's fascinating? Is even the secular world functions the exact same way. They just truncate the trajectory of salvation. In the secular world, salvation is termed just in this lifetime. And how do you get it? Well, it depends on who you are, but in the Western world, it comes through physical attractiveness, professional success, and personal comfort. And if you live in the Midwest, it might be you have a beautiful family too. This is how we define salvation. And how do you get there? Well, you've got to work real hard at it. You've got to strive without ceasing. And we teach that religion, the man-made religion, to our kids because we say things like, you can be anything that you want to be, which is another way of saying you can get salvation, whatever you desperately want. You can be whatever you want to be if you just what? Work hard and put your mind to it if you just strive without ceasing, little one. That's not good news. It's bad advice. Why was Peter willing to stick his neck out there? Not for bad advice, not even for maybe some kind of good advice. 
Peter was willing to stick his neck out there because he, he knew he had a gospel, good news of Jesus Christ. Peter stuck his neck out there. Why? Because he knew what happened at the cross for him. He had denied his Savior, but Jesus did what? He strove without ceasing all the way to the cross, all the way to hell and back. Jesus' perfect striving led him to hell. Why? To switch places with us so that all of our failed striving would still land us up in heaven for those who believe. Why would Jesus do that for us? Why would he switch places with us? Because he loved us without ceasing. See, when you understand that, it, 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 it changes you. The gospel is not good advice about what you now need to do and the next steps that you may need to make. If you believe that, you're never, you intuitively know, I don't want to just tell everybody else how to control and live their lives, so you will never give that message to anybody else. If the gospel is good news, you cannot help but share it. Some of us, we, we have a men's group on, on Monday nights and what, the last study that we did was on defeating repetitive sin and fascinatingly, one of the things that was a common theme that guys kept saying was, you know what, I struggle with this and I don't know why because I've asked God to take this away. I don't want this in my life. Why would I continue to struggle with this? And I think part of the answer, part of the answer is while God doesn't like sin, ultimately what God is seeking for you is to land in heaven with him. He wants to bring his children home. So he could snap his fingers and stop you from ever sinning again, but he doesn't. And one of the ways that he works through that is every day you look and you say, I strive and I strive and I strive and to overcome addiction or whatever else and I seemingly can't do it. Well, what might happen if you actually were able to overcome all your obstacles in life, spiritual or otherwise? If you strove really hard and you overcame and you overcame and you overcame, you might be tempted to think, yes, God loves, accepts, and blesses me because I tried hard and I overcame. And so what might God allow you to do? Continue to wallow in those struggles for the rest of your life. Why? So that you, don't, you know you don't deserve his love and yet you continue to read scripture and you find out that you continue to have his love which means that God love accepts and blesses you not because you strove so hard, not because you overcame, but because he is so good. My friends, that is not advice. That's news. When you realize the gospel's news, not advice, that means it's something that you cannot help but share with others. Let's close with the prayer. Lord Jesus, we come confessing tonight that we haven't been as bold in our witness. Specifically tonight, we're thinking our verbal witness. There's people that we need to have conversations with. If we think we have people in our lives or don't have people in our lives that need spiritual conversations, then we're just blind and inattentive. And we want to confess that too. There's loads of wandering lost souls, uh, zombie-like creatures walking around us all the time and they're lost and they need good news, the message of salvation and the message of grace. Give us a boldness like Peter that sticks our neck out there because we care so much about them and because we trust so much in your forgiveness and resurrection. Help us be bold witnesses. We ask this, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.